0: Hello and welcome. We're glad to have you guys here with us today. My name is Dr. Robert Lewis. I'm the Chief of Neurosurgery here at Hogue Health System in Newport Beach. And today we're gonna be talking about Applications of extended reality in healthcare, particularly when we talk about any new or developing technology, we want to talk about what problems does this solve. So our discussion today is going to be in a kind of problem-solution format, and how these applications of technology are changing the way we provide some aspects of healthcare. Problem statement number one, there has never been a way to practice a specific operation on a specific patient prior to surgery. Chris Ahmad is an orthopedic surgeon for the New York Yankees. And he wrote a book called Skill, where he compares the skills and preparation and training of elite athletes to those of elite surgeons. And there are many similarities. Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, the mental and physical preparation needed for athletics and high level musical performances, Olympic level athletes, is similar to the training preparation that is employed by physicians and surgeons. With one key difference, that Michael Jordan, even when he was six times world champion, still five days a week was in the gym practicing free throws by himself when there was nothing else at stake other than continued improvement. By comparison, we have never had this ability to do this in healthcare. We call it the practice of medicine because we are practicing our art, our craft, our science on human beings. The consequences of this have been well demonstrated and there's a known high error rate in medicine because of this format, but there's never been a better way to do it until the development of virtual reality. In other specia- specialties, such as the aerospace industry, we wouldn't dream of, a ma- of letting a fighter pilot go up uh, into a, 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 to fly a mission without thousands of hours in a simulator first. And yet, we allow our surgeons to practice their craft every day when the consequences could be life or death for the patient. So, this was the first time this technology was introduced to me. I was in 2015. And this is case number one uh, where uh, it, 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 to me, solved the immediate problem in my. Mind. So this is uh, a patient that was a, an artist uh, and was losing vision in his right eye. Based on the traditional two-dimensional modeling, I had planned an incision to go through his eyebrow and make a small opening in his above his right eye to get at the tumor, which is sitting right here in green. But what I realized when I did the VR simulation is that while I was going to be able to get to this portion of the tumor, this tiny tongue of tumor right here behind the optic nerve was not going to be accessible through my originally planned approach. Rather than making that mistake in a Patient, I made it in the virtual reality model and was able to press reset and you know what instead of going through the eyebrow We're going to go through the side of the head instead So 90 degree angle totally different approach and what I realized from this in plan B of the simulation Was that this was a better way to approach this tumor again rather than making that mistake in the patient and either resulting in residual tumor or damaging his vision. We made it in the virtual reality model. I was able to press reset and do it as many times as I needed so that when I got to the operation on the real patient, we did it right when it really mattered. This, to me, proved how valuable this technology can be in sometimes allowing us to make mistakes when there's no consequences. Just like Michael Jordan shooting free throws by himself in the gym, he can miss as many times he needs to so that when he gets there in the game, he's more likely to get to to do it well. So that's the whole idea behind simulation. And virtual reality is the only technology that allows us the ability to simulate surgery prior to actually performing it. So this has actually been studied at Mount Sinai University in New York. uh, And experienced surgeons, so faculty level surgeons, Preparing for surgery the traditional way, just scrolling through the images, versus using virtual reality on a patient-specific basis, the the using VR led to a change in the surgical plan nearly a quarter of the time. So 24% of the time, a virtual reality simulation led to a change in the surgical plan. If you think about that in a different way, almost a quarter of the time, the surgeon might have done the wrong or suboptimal operation for this patient, because they weren't able to practice it first. And this is the uh, ability that VR gives us in the surgical space. More importantly, the numbers uh, and and statistical outcomes are individual patient outcomes. So that patient that I showed you that, w- that was an artist and he was losing vision in his right eye. Now he was blind in his left eye from birth. So he had one eyed artist losing vision in his only good eye and losing his ability to paint. And because we did the correct operation by making the mistake in the VR model first, we we're able to preserve and actually restore his vision. And he painted this four by six canvas for me, which sits in my office and my wall across the street. Uh, and it's a reminder f- as a surgeon for me of why I do what I do every day. I get out of bed every day to restore life and restore function. And in this case, the technology afforded me the ability with surgical theater and virtual reality, the ability to do this and restore this patient's vision. Uh, And this is what gets me excited to be a surgeon. Let's move on. Problem statement number two that patients do not understand traditional medical imaging. Medical imaging uh, comes in these kind of cross-sectional formats where if you look at this kind of, you know, some people will say it looks like a Rorschach blot, you know, is it a bat or is it, two witches kissing, and whatever you decide might give you some kind of idea of of your psychological personality. Um, Whereas the image on the right uh, is very clear to my 10-year-old daughter that this is a picture of the skull we can see up into the nose, and that the tumor is in green, the pituitary is in purple, and much more. Intuitive for the patients to understand so that they themselves can better prepare for surgery. I always say that the patient is the CEO of their own healthcare team. They have to make the decision. I will empower them with information, I'm the CMO, and then I'm the COO, I execute the plan. But we need to help patients to better understand the plan for surgery so they can be a more effective member of their own healthcare team. And this, going from this image, which is difficult for even many physicians to understand, to this image here, which is easy for almost anyone to understand, really helps bridge that gap. So the average American has a ninth grade health literacy level. In other words, most people are not equipped to help us, help them have a good outcome. By using virtual reality, we're able to rapidly accelerate their learning and get them to a higher level of, of understanding in their particular condition. And this has been shown to affect not just Patient reported outcomes, but actual clinical outcomes as well. So, We've studied the impact of this here at Hoag on patients and uh, with several factors. This is a three-year longitudinal study and what we found is in in the first year we were using just traditional black and white images, the DICOM images, and more than a third of the patients were leaving our health system and migrating to other regional health systems which we have several reputable ones in the area. UCLA, USC, and Cedars-Sinai are all very well-known academic neurosurgical centers with excellent care. I was losing more than a third of my patients uh, because because they wanted to go to somewhere where they thought they would have had a higher level of care. When we switched from traditional medical imaging to virtual reality based consultations where the patients are in the VR with their family members and the doctor, prior to surgery, it's, I call this enhanced informed consent, that attrition rate dropped from 36%, so we're you know, keeping 64%, that went up to 96%. So in other words, we, our attrition rate dropped from 36% down to 4%, Because of this enhanced level of understanding, the patients felt more engaged. They felt more balanced as a part of their healthcare team. They felt they were more included in the decision-making process. And as a result, they voted with their feet. They stay here more often. So fewer than 5% of patients now are leaving our health system and going to other regional health systems because of the impact of virtual reality on helping them to understand their own condition. So the result of this study was to expand Beyond neurosurgery, so we said, okay, if we're using this to help patients in neurosurgery, why wouldn't it work in interventional cardiology? And in fact, it did. We studied that in interventional cardiology for TAVR and Watchman procedures. Very, very similar results: significant decrease in patient outmigration as a result of the immersive aspect and the patients feeling a more involved, more informed part of their own healthcare team. They also felt that it mattered to the doctor to get them to that point, and therefore they felt more comfortable having their healthcare here. So we started. Started off with you know one system in neurosurgery and then continued to expand because in, in all of healthcare you know the patient experience is kind of at the center and this is you know a lot of uh, organizations are are looking at this and virtual reality uh, according to Forbes magazine who isn't in the business of medicine but is in the business of business virtual reality is the number one technology for patient experience in healthcare so with the idea that we put the patient experience in the center we then developed a model okay beyond surgical preparation and patient engagement. What other areas are there where virtual and augmented reality could be useful in healthcare, and where can we start to put them into practice? So, we developed kind of an academic model of how to look at these things based on tiers of evidence. So, in the cl- closest to the patient experience, we have the deploy category. This is applications of virtual reality which I consider to be fully baked, that are fully developed. That, for example, there are more than 500 published clinical trials for the ver- use of virtual reality for uh, acute and chronic pain. So, I put that in the deploy category. In other words, in my mind, no further research is needed in order to put these things into broad scale deployment across our health systems. In the middle category, there are other technologies which use virtual and augmented reality, which require additional research, and we are involved in helping to develop and and advance that research so that we can prove the use case. It isn't that VR and AR will be useful for everything in healthcare everywhere. We want to find out where does the data support its use and how can we best leverage those capabilities to deliver the best out outcomes for our patients. Finally, we are actively involved in developing new technologies. When a a physician, a clinician, or a surgeon presents us with a problem, we try to think, how can we solve this by using virtual or augmented reality? Is this something where we could develop a new technology, software, hardware, or both, um, in order to solve a problem that's brought to us by one of our team? So, um, based on the success we had initially in neurosurgery and using virtual reality, we went again to uh, cardiology, then cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, Spine surgery, orthopedics, and ultimately went to an enterprise wide deployment where rather than having individual workstations with VR set up, we have now a centralized virtual reality control and command center, which is located in the main hospital here in Newport Beach. And from here, uh, all of the virtual reality models for any patient in the health system can be built and then routed to any of our three hospitals within the Hogue Health System. What this allows, this centralized command and control of the VR model building, is allows us for really to, to progressively scale and make these capabilities available to all of our physicians and surgeons as well as all of the patients that they treat. So leveraging the ability to practice surgeries using VR for the surgeons and leveraging the ability to help patients in this enhanced informed consent process better understand their surgical plan and therefore be better advocates for their own ultimate outcomes. Uh, This is not done without heavy uh, evidence backing. So over the last several years, we've published more than 40 papers and and presented it at more than 50 scientific and academic congresses uh, regarding the impact of virtual reality in anything from preparation for the surgeons to uh, surgical simulation to patient uh, planning and preparation and understanding, education, uh, surgical simulation, and augmented reality guidance during surgery. All of these are are, now heavily published across neurosurgery, cardiac surgery, surgery, and more. So how does this help our hospital? Why are we interested in doing this in the first place? Well, number one, uh, it improves patient care. As, As we said, using a surgical simulation to change the surgical plan, ultimately, in many cases, leads to a better outcome because we can avoid potentially uh, mistakes that otherwise might have not have happened if we hadn't been able to practice. Uh, it increases potential, uh, patient retention, as we discussed. So the uh, growth that results in this has resulted in the increasing investment by our health system in the expansion of VR. In other words, because it delivered an initial return on investment, the health system has been very interested in continuing to expand the use cases. To to see where we can leverage those capabilities again to to bring more patients uh, into our health system. Uh, It also has led to, again, numerous scientific publications as well as um, improvement in our academic ranking, or excuse me, our our, um, US News and World Report ranking. Uh, We went from unranked uh, to number 27 in the nation for neurology and neurosurgery based in part by leveraging these technologies to help uh, better prepare for surgery and help patients uh, to help uh, find us better. Shifting gears for just a little bit from virtual reality to augmented reality is problem statement number three, that traditional navigation forces surgeons to divert their attention away from the operative field. Think about this for a second. We all remember a time when if you were lost, you would have to pull the car over, so stop driving, pull out the map, find out where you were, plot a course to get where you wanted to be, and then go back to driving. This is the way that nobody does that anymore. We all now have augmented reality, uh, guidance navigation systems that tell us turn by turn where we need to go if there's a traffic accident, if there's a police radar trap. Those are all projected into our consciousness to augment our ability to understand the route to where we need to get to. Still, prior to AR and surgery, if I wanted to find out where I was, I would have to stop the operation, put a probe in, figure out where this x and y spot is in the three-dimensional model or three-dimensional patient's brain in front of me and then go back to operating. So I was kind of looking constantly back and forth between the patient and the navigation system. In other words, interrupting our operative flow. Surgeons like musicians or athletes have a flow and if we're constantly having to context switch between the surgical field and the two-dimensional navigational space, it interrupts our operative flow. Surgeons, you know, get very frustrated by this. For example, if the scrub tech hands me the instrument upside down, I won't throw it at them, but I might might get irritated enough uh, to scream and yell, or there are all kinds of temper tantrums that surgeons are known to have in the operating room. This is a common thing, unfortunately. Um, But one of the common frustrations is the the interruption of the flow. And so with the development of augmented reality technology, which was co-developed here at Hogue, along with Surgical Theater, uh, we now know longer have to do this. So we take the navigation system, the guidance system that helps us to know where we are, and we take the three-dimensional model of this patient's brain, and we inject it into the eyepiece of the surgical microscope, and it's overlaid to precisely allow us to see what we cannot see. So on the left here is an image through the surgical microscope of a tumor involving the optic nerve, similar to the one we showed in the the VR case earlier. On the right, you can see the augmented reality overlay, it's called SyncAR overlay, that is projected into my surgical field, so now I can see all of the relevant structures without having to divert my attention away from the surgical field. If you look at this image on the left, maybe the optic nerve is here, or maybe it's here. not really sure, and I have a trained eye to do this. When I step on the foot pedal and bring in the sync AR image, I can see in blue the left optic nerve, the right optic nerve. I can see the sweeping course of the ICA, the carotid artery, which runs through this tumor. If i don 't know where those things are in surgery, I can 't protect them, and yet, even with the 10 times magnification of the microscope, I can 't see them. So the augmented reality allows me to see what I would otherwise not be able to see. When I was interviewed by CNN about the development uh, and deployment of this technology, they quoted me as saying, I believe it gives us superman powers. It really does allow the surgeon to see through and around structures and gives us additional ability to get the operations done more safely. And in no situation does that matter more than in the brain. Because when a brain or nerve that goes to the brain, for example, for vision is injured, it cannot be repaired. If you cut into a muscle or tendon, you suture it back together, it works again. If you cut into a nerve, it will never work again. And so we don't have any room for errors in neurosurgery. That's why our specialty is as difficult as it is. So any technology that we can leverage Leverage, whether it's preoperative planning to make sure the plan is right or whether it's intraoperative enhanced visualization, putting those two together, it feels like I make a plan in VR and then I know that it's going to work then during surgery, I'm executing a plan that I know is going to work. And so it feels almost like deja vu when I get in the operating room. like, I've seen this in this particular patient before, I know what's coming up next, and therefore I can do the operation through a smaller approach, less invasive, better recovery for the patients. This is a case of using augmented reality uh, to guide the resection of a cavernous malformation. So you imagine this is kind of a cluster of abnormal blood vessels uh, that is uh, located within the brain, and uh, what it causes oftentimes is seizures. And so uh, this patient is a young male uh, presented with visual seizures, so essentially like hallucinations. He was seeing things that weren't there. 26 years old. Um, And on the traditional uh, two dimensional imaging, you can see the kind of problem area right here, this tangle of abnormal abnormal blood vessels located within its visual cortex. And so this is the virtual reality simulation we did before surgery. We plan the craniotomy or the opening so that it's precisely right over the, the uh, area. So we don't remove any more bone than we have to. So and as part of this process, we study these, the visual fibers. So the green pathway here is the patient's visual fibers. So the irritation of these by this, this uh, lesion was causing the visual seizures. The, we have to remove the lesion without disrupting those fibers because if we disrupt them, the patient will be blind on that side of their world. So this is now in surgery, the navigation probe you can see there. And this is on the screen left, the microscope image without uh, got, uh, augmented reality, and on screen right is the augmented reality sync AR overlay showing the additional information that is afforded to us by the AR system. So uh, this is now the surface of the brain and you can see this kind of meatball looking thing in the center is the lesion itself. On screen right with the augmented reality, not only can we see the, the problem, but I can see those critical visual pathways overlaid on top of the brain, even though I can't see them at all through the surgical microscope. So seeing where those are and being able to protect them by that additional information affords me the ability to successfully safely remove this lesion without damaging the patient's vision, because again, as I mentioned before, once these fibers are damaged, they can never be recovered. Now this is the post-operative simulation showing successful resection of the lesion with preservation of those visual fibers. This patient uh, on post-operative day one was discharged home, which is unusual after brain surgery, but afforded to us by the ability to do it minimally invasively, and his visual seizures have since resolved. So again, just another example of how we now combine pre-operative virtual reality simulation with intraoperative augmented reality guidance in order to allow us to perform these operations in the least invasive way possible. Let's talk a little bit beyond neurosurgery. So we have a lot of experience um, over the last several years using VR for surgical simulation, patient education. Uh, surgeon education and more, but there are many other applications of virtual reality which we're going to touch upon a few of these today. My favorite of these, and this is something I have a passion for, uh, is in uh, in the space of acute and chronic pain. So our final problem statement of the day is that more than 100,000 Americans now die every year from opioid overdose. This is more than car accidents, and many of you may be surprised to learn that 80% of those people originally started with a legitimately prescribed opiate for legitimate pain by their physician, and then they became addicted to it, they had to turn to illicit ways of of, of getting more of it, and ultimately, again, this is tragic. And the problem is that opioids do not solve chronic pain. They're actually a pretty bad solution for chronic pain, and what I tell people is they're useful for a few days after surgery or if you're dying of cancer. Uh, really in my mind these are the true applications where opiates are what we should be using. In Again, 100,000 Americans a year dying from this now, in most cases we're giving them and patients are becoming addicted is because we don't have any other solution. We have not had good solutions for chronic pain. So as I mentioned before, there have been, over the last 20 years, numerous studies uh, by pioneers such as Walter Greenleaf uh, and others uh, studying the impact of virtual reality on both acute and chronic pain. it, we, what we found is that there is a gap in chronic pain care. Pain is not just a physiological process. There's a biopsychosocial model of pain in which depression, for example, will increase your sensitivity to pain. Um, fear will increase your sensitivity to pain. Isolation—if you're socially isolated—you're more likely to be uh, ha- suffer from chronic pain, and the pain will be more likely to affect you. Opioids don't address these things. Ultimately, they make, may make you more isolated. So there. Needs needs to be a better model, a more comprehensive model or a way of Accessing uh, these different um, aspects of the pain cycle in order to treat them. So, this is where virtual reality really shines. So, VR experiences are great at creating just that experiences. They, you know, in cases where we need to create an experience in order to help a patient learn something, or a surgeon practice something, or a pilot prepare for a mission, this is where VR really shines. And in the pain world, one of the one of the problems is that the traditional me- methods of teaching patients about their pain of educating them of teaching them mindfulness result in a cognitive bottleneck because they only access the cognitive control system of the brain there are actually four pain centers in the brain that we need to unlock in order to treat uh, the chronic pain the the affective or cognitive control the sensory um, and motor control the emotional and behavioral control and descending modulation. By creating an experience that unlocks all of these four learning centers of the brain, we can accelerate the patient's learning and therefore enhance their ability to downregulate their own pain. This is done by things like mindfulness and meditation, by activating the parasympathetic or rest and digest uh, aspect of the nervous system, by deactivating the fight or flight sympathetic nervous system, which is overactive uh, in pain. By Doing this, uh, we can help patients to downregulate their pain, and virtual reality has proven to be a powerful tool to be able to do this. In fact, we here at Hogue were involved in a randomized controlled clinical trial um, which uh, studied the use of virtual reality for at-home treatment of chronic low back pain. Low back pain is an immensely common and immensely expensive condition. The number one reason for people to seek health care in the United States is pregnancy. The number two is low back pain. In fact, 90% of Americans will seek health care at some point in their lifetime for chronic low back pain. This study leveraged a use of 10-minute virtual reality sessions per day for eight weeks at home in patients with chronic low back pain. And this is what we found as compared to a a sham virtual reality experience, meaning they're in VR but it's not really a therapeutic experience. This is a, as close as we can get to a placebo control in a technology healthcare trial. By comparison, what we saw after eight weeks is a 42% reduction in the pain intensity, nearly 50% reduction in the interference with their activities, 56% reduction in their interference uh, with their mood, significant reductions in their interference with stress. And these results were sustained or nearly sustained at three and six months, and this is actually an older slide, we just now got accepted for publication in the journal Pain Medicine. The 24 months, so nearly two years after completing their eight-week VR program, they still have 30 to 40% reduction in the pain and the consequences of the pain on their mood, emotion, and activities. Now, you imagine that 10 minutes a day for 8 weeks can result in relief of pain 2 years later. This is really powerful data and as a result has res- uh, led to the first de novo clearance of F- uh, by the FDA of the use of virtual reality for the at-home treatment of chronic low back pain. This is a, a tremendous achievement uh, in the world of what we call digital therapeutics. So, we've talked a lot today about surgeon preparation and education, but now we're leading into the world of using VR actually to treat conditions, and chronic pain is leading the way with the first First FDA clearance of this. There are other applications that are coming online as well. Uh, we are again working to uh, study these, to deploy them at scale, and bring these solutions to our patients here in Orange County. Uh, and working with tel- uh, technology, healthcare partners, large and small, in order to figure out where can we really put these uh, these solutions into place. One of the big, our, our, our kind of uh, passion projects is using it for the tri- uh, for in in the, in the setting of palliative care. You know, I mean, for me, like one of my fears in life is that I'm going to run out of time before. Or I get to do the things I want to do. Um, one of our amazing projects we have going on here is one of our palliative care doctors, Dr. Vincent Nguyen, um, has gone to uh, holy sites throughout the world, so Jerusalem and Lourdes, France, uh, and is creating, you know, <laughs> it makes me tear up a little bit, he's creating these uh, experiences uh, that are able to be delivered to patients in their home, even while they're on hospice. So allowing someone to visit the Holy Land when they never maybe got to in their life, uh, when they're in their final days. Uh, there's arguably no greater gift we can give to people uh, in, the, in this time than some ability to or be with their family or see some place they just always wanted to see. This is, you know, to me, creating experiences for people, um, even when, you know, that we can't have no other way to treat them. This is what healthcare is all about. Um, you know, totally the other end of, spectra, uh, the, of the spectrum from surgery, uh, but still making a significant impact on patients. Uh, we're proud of the work that we're doing here in this space. And um, I'm glad that you guys were able to uh, come here today and share with us just a little bit of the uh, the way we're employing uh, VR and AR technologies across our health system. Thank you for your attention.